Awesome. How's everybody doing this morning? <laughs> it's always cute to see our kids dressed up, isn't it? And um, also to thank everybody involved. It's a, it's a big undertaking, uh, mobilizing so many kids, dressing up and everything. And um, David and Emma Dawson are responsible for sort of um, uh, directing and making everything and the videos and everything. So we should just give them a round of applause wherever they are. And I have the wonderful privilege of sharing with you this morning. You know, I've been uh, in our home recently, we had a, a moment where we were discussing what each and every person was going to get for Christmas. And uh, what do you want? And what do you want? And what do you want? And, and we, none of us could seem to nail down what it is that we wanted. And then in a moment, my wife burst out. Since when did we get so choosy about what we get for Christmas? And it reminded me of a story of my childhood, and maybe you can re relate, but I I'm from a family of four boys, and I remember one very sad Christmas, my parents took so much time to go and buy a a an assortment of lovely gifts, and when it all came down to it, 80 to 90% of those gifts end up going back to the store because they didn't fit into the box of my and my brother's expectation. Has anyone been there? Is anyone part of a gift card family? <laughs> but I remember reflecting back on that moment and feeling sad because of the amount of time and effort and energy and resource that had gone in to preparing those gifts for us. And this morning, we've obviously seen a very cute story of our kids talking about and revealing to us the Christmas story. But my question for you as you're sitting there this morning is, are you willing, maybe you're visiting, I don't know anything about some of you out here, but are you willing to consider a gift that may not fit inside the box of your expectation? In John chapter 1, one of the disciples that followed Jesus around for three years, he wrote this. He, Jesus, came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word, as in Jesus, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one the Bible calls the King of Kings. But the but the world did not recognize him. You know, what's interesting is there's a prophet, his name was Isaiah, and 600 years before this birth in Bethlehem, he said this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he was prophesying about the coming of this person, Jesus Christ. But what humanity saw was simply a child born. But what heaven saw was a son given. And I think no matter where you are from in the world, maybe you're a Canadian, American, maybe you're from a different country, 
We as humans typically measure our heroes similarly. It could be strength, it could be power, it could be um, lavish lifestyle, it could be a lot of wealth, whatever it is, royal lineage. But we as humans have a way of measuring the success of a human based on some or one of these things. But Jesus was not born into any of these things. Instead, he was born into humble humanity. He was the discreet hinge in history. It says this of Mary and Joseph. When they arrived in Bethlehem, Mary went into labor. And there she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped the newborn baby in strips of cloth. And Mary and Joseph laid him in a feeding trough since there was no available space in any upper room in the village. You know, this word for upper room is the word cataluma. And it's referring to the upstairs level. And in those days, typically the upstairs level would be in a relative's home. And that's where friends or guests would stay. And so likely what's happened is Mary and Joseph are, are instead staying in the multi-purpose room. The room that maybe doubles as a workshop by day and then ho- uh, houses the frail animals by night. So here we have the king of kings born into frail humanity. And I think what's important is that when you and I think about kings and we think about royalty and we think about uh, powerful people, we often don't associate that with um, the way that Jesus came into the world. He wasn't pampered. It says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. You know, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. It's cozy, it's warm, it's inviting. But you know, it's also amazing to look across the globe and see that so many people, whether they are followers of Jesus or not, acknowledge this significant moment in history. But can I just say, what gives this moment significance in history is not because Jesus was born in a manger or because his parents were Mary and Joseph, but there's another event not so warm and cozy, that creates the, um, the mystery and the beauty of Christmas. And it's this. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, 33 years after this cute and cozy scene that we love to reenact every year, Jesus undergoes a brutal death. And it's not just a death, it's a murder. But more importantly... After that murder of being hung and killed on a cross, he is raised back to life supernaturally after three days. I don't know about you, but in the last two years, there's something I've realized about humanity. Is that we have an ability to demonize each other, simply based on a differing opinion. And if anything, 
That should help us understand the climate in which Jesus was killed. You ever watch those YouTube videos where the, the really rich guy is dresses in rags and he hides on this corner. He's please give me a dollar, please. And most people discard, discard. And then there's that one person who's like, yeah, you know what? Here's five bucks. And then he goes, bah! Here's five million dollars. Right? <laughs> You're obviously not on Facebook, bro. <laughs> But we see these stories of, of the hidden camera. People are secretly good, right? But you know with Jesus, while there were a few moments like that among his disciples, the world didn't get that experience necessarily where they go, everybody agrees and says, boom, Jesus goes, bam, lightning bolts come here and this and this. There he is. That is the king. It didn't happen like that with Jesus. So my question for us this morning is who was it that murdered Jesus? Who was it that pulled the trigger, if you will? Firstly, it was religious people. It was also powerful political people. It was also rich people. But I think most of all, it was seemingly good people. My question is, how could such well-behaved, successful people become angry to the point of murder? Before we answer that, my, I want to just read one passage that, that Mike actually read this morning to identify the mission and passion of Jesus. It says this in John 3, for God so loved the world. This is Jesus speaking about his, his Father in heaven and himself. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So why was it that Jesus, a beacon of love and grace and mercy, was met with such human hostility. I want to read a story to help us understand this. It's in Luke 18, and it's about the rich young ruler. It says this, Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. 
only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible for people is possible for God. We live in a very rich society. We're blessed, aren't we? But what's interesting to me is that this rich young ruler was trying to figure out what he could do to get eternal life. I'm sure he imagined, just like most other areas in his life, that this was just going to be another tight-fisted pursuit. I think what's also interesting is the disciples respond very uniquely because we have a religious man standing here saying, what must I do? And you know, in that day, this man would have been regarded as the ultimate picture of success. He was probably in his 20s. He had a lot of wealth. He was religious. The list goes on. And what would have happened in those days is they would have looked at this rich young ruler and said, He's he loves God, he's wealthy, and because he's wealthy, that shows us that God really does love him. And so when the disciples realize that this guy is not going to be able to inherit eternal life with a tight-fisted pursuit, they are feeling absolutely flabbergasted, like, we don't know how to get into heaven. We don't know how to obtain eternal life. If he is not qualified, then I am not qualified. This rich young ruler was probably also a very well-meaning person. He may not have had tremendous evils going on in his life. We don't know. But what we do know is that when Jesus says, follow the commandments, he says, I have. And Jesus doesn't go, have you really? Did you ever steal a paperclip? What does that make you? Did you ever lie as a child? What does that mean? No, Jesus took him at his word. But it's also interesting that the rich young ruler, even though he fulfilled the commandments, he tried to love God, he had a lot of wealth, yet still, he's standing before Jesus because he has a question. 
Most of us think subconsciously that if we have all of our needs met, if we succeed in whatever it is that we are wanting to succeed in, that we will not have questions in the same way. But what this tells me is that even a good person who has checked all the boxes still has a void in their lives that they need answered. They still have a gap. They still have something that doesn't add up. They still have a feeling of unworthiness, of, of, of um, not being valued the way they should be. And I think the saddest part of the story, another translation says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. But the saddest part for me is that the rich young ruler, even though Jesus holds out hope, says he leaves sad. I mean, Jesus took the time, he engaged him, he answered his question, and the man leaves sad because he was rich. And I think, if I could simplify it like this, is that for you and I as human beings, it isn't until we come to the end of our humanity that we are willing to take our lives of close-fisted pursuit and go into a position that Jesus requires of us, which is simply this. Why? Because salvation looks a lot like surrender. I receive, I don't achieve. And when Jesus meets us where we're at, it's often at the end of ourselves. It's in that place where we go, okay, I show my hand. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do next, God. I, I don't have options. I simply have, I have to trust you. We've all been there, right? But it's in that moment when we're not holding on tight to the things that we know are false securities that we begin to open our hands in a, in, a, in a posture of surrender. And it's in that place that God says, okay, come. Jesus is never going to be a means to an end. He's never going to fit in the box that we are hoping. I want to read a few verses and we're going to close. In Ephesians, it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Acts 4 says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Titus 3 says this, He saves us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Bible also says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us needs saving. The fact that we all have that feeling that we are on trial should expose to us that we know something in us is broken. Am I as good as? Do I qualify for? Am I worthy? Am I valuable? But you know the other beautiful thing about meeting King Jesus? You know, if you knew that you were going to have a meeting with a king, 
you'd probably go home, shower, shave, get ready, put on your best clothes, because you're about to be presented before a king. But the Bible tells us something very different. The Bible tells us that Jesus is a king who is not unable to relate to us in our weakness. It tells us that when we come to him just as we are, he does the washing. He does the robing. He does the honor. Revelation 3 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Can I encourage you this morning as we celebrate this momentous occasion in the Christmas season? Don't worry. If you have never met Jesus, what I want to say is this. Don't worry about the mess. You don't have to have it all together to meet this king. Don't worry about all the things that will have to be undone and redone and overdone. All you have to focus on is meeting this king. Don't worry about the appetites that you have. All you have to do is worry about meeting this king. It's amazing, my wife and I being married, and maybe you have experienced this if you're married or if you hang around someone for a long amount of time. All of a sudden, you start picking up mannerisms. You start saying things the same way. You start thinking similarly. And it's just like that with Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This journey of meeting Jesus is not a journey of trying so hard, closed-fisted, to just be good. No. It's a journey of simply getting to know him and by implication, becoming like him. Amen?